have a serious confession to make. What? Uh, I have not yet watched season four of The Crown. I was going to ask you about it. I can't believe it. I am too nervous because of the <laughs> Princess Diana thing. I'm too nervous. Like, I don't want to watch her deal with bulimia. I don't yeah. want to, like... It's just too, re- it feels too real. The other stuff felt like a little bit fantasy, like right. Queen Elizabeth and stuff. But this is like, no. Well, it's, it does feel weird that they're coming into like the common era where it's like, oh no, this is stuff that like we kind of know and remember and are familiar with. And like, and like her kids can watch it. Yeah. I don't think they will. I heard that like the estate of Prince What's-His-Face is like very upset. What is his name? Prince Philip? Prince yeah well Charles 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 yeah I've heard that like his people are like very upset and it's like mm, maybe you shouldn't have been such a dick yeah <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read the article actually I'm doing a headline grab but, Hi. but sounds yeah. right sounds right but uh we are not here to talk more about Princess Diana no we already did that we have a whole <laughs> long saga episode about that yeah we're here to talk about her story on the front with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. <laughs> we are heavily drinking typically liquor, liqueur, mm-hmm. beer, wine, mm-hmm. the whole gamut. And I, we're not historians. No, we're not. <laughs> We just want you to know because if we mess something up or if we slur our words, that is why um, we always welcome corrections, which I have a feeling I'm going to have a lot of corrections to my story tonight. Um, That's okay. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But before we even do anything, honestly, we need to give some shout outs. Yes, we do. (laughs) We've had some amazing um, listeners review us this week. So many of them. It's been really fun. We had Emily Mm -hmm. and not the typical (gasps) Emily, not Emily Hill. We got a new review. I don't know how to say her last name. Piet? Piet, I would assume. Um, Yeah, Emily Piet. um, But we don't know who you are online. So if you want to like... Give us your your yeah, at name. Yeah, give us your at name because we did definitely tag the wrong Emily Piet today. And um, so can the real Emily Piet just please stand up? And you said buzzard, and we want to give you wanna, your we want to give you something. So please reach out to us because it was one of my favorite reviews that we've ever gotten. Yeah, and then we had Lessa Charlotte yes. also, and then Yay History, which I think is hashtag History. Uh, yeah, was I that coming? So. Yeah, but thank you guys <sighs> so much for those reviews. It Super. Means- Sweet. so much to us so we just wanted to dedicate a little bit in the beginning to thanking you and your very very kind words it's a free way to support your favorite podcast not it just really ours is. but like everybody's it bumps them up in the algorithm so that when people search for hashtags like you know or women's history like just generally in podcasts ours will come up quicker yeah exactly so thank you thank you but you guys are really busy right now <laughs> trying to clasp your bracelet you know how it's really hard when you're trying to put your bracelet on with one hand oh, that yes. like little clasp I thought you meant like just grab it no 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 like get it on with the little clasp and you're all alone but the podcast is on because you're getting ready to go to not a party but just like to sit out on your deck silently yeah exactly so (laughs) in a nice outfit so we don't want you to have your bracelet slip out of your hands so so we are going to describe what these women look like so that you can get a picture in your head while we're talking um because sometimes it's nice to have a little visual but we don't want you to have to again drop your bracelet by googling so we're gonna get a little 
Physical, physical. Ali, who are you doing and what does she look like? So I'm doing Sarah Estelle and I have no idea what she looks like. Oh, okay. There are no descriptions. There are no pictures. There are no drawings. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that she was from the 1800s in okay. Tennessee. But other than that, we're at a complete loss. However, based on the 1960 census report from Tennessee, she was 50 years old in 1860 and it had an F listed for female and an M for mulatto. So oh. she wasn't black. She was considered um, biracial. Okay. So that's really all we know. Okay. But being biracial and living in the 1800s in Tennessee not is not going to be an easy life. Okay. So that's what we know. All right. Awesome. What, <laughs> who are you doing? What does she look um, like? I am doing the Sorceress Cersei. Cersei. Um, so again, uh, kind of like yours, we don't really know what she looked like because <laughs> she is a fictional character. Um, but she is considered to be one of those beautiful women in Greek mythology. She is typically portrayed with like long flowing dark or auburn or like fiery red hair really runs the gamut but i think in the original story it's like it, they say it's fiery um and it's either down or braided in the original like odyssey um they say braids um she's typically seen in purple robes with a gold veil um and with a wand or a staff in one hand and a glass with some sort of magic potion in the other um, fun fact, Cersei is the earliest magical person who wields any type of wand, which has obviously now affected our entire understanding of magic. And honestly, after doing this research, pretty much everything we think of from like witches I, like comes from her. Wow. There are a lot of stereotypes that like arise from the Cersei story. So like story. very wand lore yeah, type it's stuff. wands, a uh, house in the middle of the forest, potions, turning um, people animal into familiars. Yeah. yeah, it's like everything comes from Cersei. Oh, cool. It's really neat. So that's what she looked like. <laughs> so fun. Well, I'm ready to dive deep into these stories. Mm -hmm. But also, I do want to say happy Thanksgiving. If you're yeah. listening today, this happy is our Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving episode. Yeah. Um, and last year on Thanksgiving, we did an Indigenous Women episode. Yes, and it did. was super cool. Um. This year it's not, but I'm gonna explain, <laughs> I'm gonna explain why I think it's cool that we're doing Sarah during Thanksgiving. Okay, all right. So you ready to know what you're drinking? I am. It looks delicious and desserty. Okay, so this is called Miss Sarah's Famous Mudslide, Ooh. and it's the basic mudslide ingredients with a little bit extra. Okay. So it's vodka, coffee liqueur, Bailey's, and heavy cream. Uh, usually you add in some sort of ice cream, but you don't have to, and some sort of chocolate syrup. I chose mint chocolate chip ice cream mm -hmm. because when people used to make ice cream, it was like whatever random ingredients they could find. Yeah. So mint just seems like something, obviously, that grew in America. Uh -huh. And then it is sprinkled on top with a little tiny bit <laughs> of Parmesan cheese. Why? <laughs> Am I going to learn in this story? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Cheers. cheers. <laughs> Mm. Mm. I love a mudslide. It's minty, it's chocolatey, and then it tastes like a mudslide. You can't even taste the Parmesan cheese, no. which I'm actually happy about. <laughs> um, every time I have a mudslide, I think of you because it was like when I first started drinking and like you and Jake were in like your first house and like I just remember like, let's make mudslides and you <laughs> broke out your blender. <laughs> Why? And we just had all these mudslides. I honestly, and I also... 
I, I don't even, uh, obviously, I don't remember what happened with the rest of that night, but I remember we had mudslides. <laughs> hey, listen. And it was great. That It's like an early drink, easy drink. Like oh, yeah. If you're really young, it's like it's just a milkshake with alcohol in yeah. it. <laughs> okay. So what do you know about Sarah Estelle? I think that she was just a woman who sold ice cream in the 1800s, but I don't know anything about I've I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. All I know is she was a woman of color and she sold ice cream in the 1800s. And that's really all we know about okay. Sarah Estelle. So I did a deep dive into as many documents as I could find and then went into other free black women during the antebellum period. Okay. So I kind of expanded it because she was a fleet, a free woman of color in antebellum South. And I was like, well, what, who else can I find that was kind of like this? So I can like box it together. Yeah. No, I love that. So I feel like these are kind of like, I like when this happens because you get like a lot of women for like one episode. Right. So it's really fun. Um, I'm a little nervous about it because I, I did, I, Try Googling free black women in antebellum South. You will get nothing. Yeah. There is, this is a very under-researched area, um, sadly, because there were a lot of people that were. So the first thing that I found when I started Googling was a book called In Pursuit of Knowledge, Black Women and Educational Activism in Antebellum America. Now, this focuses mostly on black women living in the North. It's a book that just came out in 2019 by... Mm. Dr. Cabria Baumgartner, and who's this amazing African-American woman. She's done a lot of podcasts about this book, like being interviewed by other people. And it's just about the history of African-American women and their quest for educational activism. And it brought up a lot of different free black women. But it, I thought it did something really cool. It explained intellectual history really well. Mm. We always say like, well, the white men won, so they got to write history, which is true, but that's not the end of it, right? They, right. they didn't just get to write history. They got to produce knowledge. So even though a lot of women fought for the right to go to school, they didn't have the right to be knowledge producers. Yeah. That's like an extra level of privilege. Well, and it's so interesting because I just listened to a podcast by Beyond Reproach. Mm -hmm. They did a whole episode on how like the Daughters of the Confederacy, which is kind of like Daughters of the American Revolution, like basically like helped rewrite like Southern history to be like super racist. They're like, no, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. And it's like this thing where you're like, I'm happy that women are having some sort of influence over education because we haven't for a very long time. Right. But also like, why does it have to be this? Like, right. I wish it wasn't like a super racist history, but it's like another thing that we just have to fucking tackle. It's the rewriting in the sense that it's like sugarcoating. It's like, yeah. was the civil war about states rights? Sure. But it was about the states right to have slaves. To own slaves. Right. Yeah. So it's like at some point, the purpose was slavery, no matter yeah. what twist you decide to put on it. Right, exactly. And it sucks that, like, women were kept out of, like, you know, incur like, you know, writing textbooks for so long, and then this is what they fucking did with it. Right. And it's also hard because the antebellum South is mm -hmm. such, for white women, such, yeah. like, a fairy tale type yeah. um, atmosphere. Like, I'm in I'm this a manor house. Yeah, and, debutante yeah, ball and belle. ruffles and big hair. And it's like, it's, it wasn't like that for everybody. No, definitely And that not. brings us back to the point of why I said it's important that we're doing this episode on Thanksgiving. I was thinking about a lot of enslaved black women who 
cooked Thanksgiving dinners for like all of America for like mm -hmm. a long time. Although I know, I feel like Abe Lincoln is the one who had us start celebrating Thanksgiving. Yes. But I was just thinking of all the meals that people prepped and yeah. never got thanked for. Yeah. So that's a really good way to think about it. Made me think about the, the amount of work that was put in for people who were very ungrateful. Yeah. So Sarah Estelle, I believe, was born in 1810. And I only think that because the census from 1860 said she was 50 years old. But I don't know what her birth records were. I just did backwards math. Right. Uh, she could have been or born. Or just math. Yeah, math in general. <laughs> backwards math is called subtraction. <laughs> um, she could have been born in Tennessee, but it also could have been elsewhere. I don't know. Okay. She's just from Tennessee when this story is happening. And this is where we got this idea. Our sister-in-law, our joint sister-in-law, Olivia, suggested this person. She sent us a text months ago when she saw this cool post on Facebook of one of those historical signs. And the sign says, Sarah Estelle, a free black woman in the slavery era, ran an ice cream parlor and sweet shop near here. She overcame the many hurdles faced by free persons of color and her venture thrived. Her catering firm met the banquet needs of the city's firemen, church socials, and political parties from 1840 to 1860. Hmm. That's all the sign says. I tried to dig into this as much as I could, and what I found is there's very little information about, like I said, free people of color in general. But what I did find is this really cool TED Talk. And the TED Talk is called The Missing Century of Black History in the Americas. And it's a woman named Jane Landers. And she's a professor of Latin American history and grew up in Latin America, but said she was really interested in race. And one thing she noticed is when she talked to people who grew up in the United States and talked about black history, they would only tie it back to slavery. And she would say, yes, it happened and it's terrible and it impacted our country country but there's more to it there were free black sailors on Christopher Columbus's ships when he came over to the Caribbean um, Africa was really close or is really close to Spain and Portugal so their freeness is different there the same is true of France so we've just accepted the black story that the British colonies wrote and like put off all the other black stories that are part of America. Mm -hmm. Because what we know is the British colonies race was very important. There were codes set up to control and suppress both free and enslaved people of color and free black communities existed. Yes. Up and down the North American seaboard, the largest being in Philadelphia and it existed because of the Quakers, but we don't talk a lot about it. So then I found another amazing black professor named Dr. K. Wise Whitehead, and she teaches at Loyola University. Really? Yeah. Here? Yeah, here. That's so cool. Um, and she did this like book and this lecture about Philly and said that it was a gateway into being a free person of color in the United States and that families, free black families, had lived there since the 1700s. So for hundreds of years, there's this massive group of free black people living in Philadelphia and they were wealthy and they were coming out of the Revolutionary War and they were getting their boys and girls education and then they would actually live next to and in neighborhoods with enslaved black people. And they didn't really speak to each other very much because the free black people were trying to separate themselves from that group of people yeah. in America to build their own economics. So now's where we get to ice cream. Okay. <laughs> we're going to bounce from 
uh, free people of color in the United States to a little bit of a history of ice cream because it's an interesting history because it's a dessert that needs to be cold and cold desserts were not attainable before electricity. So from 1800, there were 1 million slaves in the United States. 1860, there were 4 million because of the cotton gin. So it skyrocketed, but we cannot put aside the effects of sugar on slavery because even though it wasn't necessarily mainland America, like Haiti is massively producing sugar to like send it to places that want to make things like ice cream. The oldest mention of ice cream is from Alexander the Great. He used Hmm. to collect snow and like just dump flavors on it or like smash up fruit on it. Oh, so he was making snowballs. Right. <laughs> and then that's what Marco Polo did. He's the ne- one of the next mentions. And he like went over to Eastern Asia, saw them do it, and then brought the idea of quote unquote sherbet back to Italy. Mm-hmm. So that's where that came from. And then the people started to have like their servants like run up the mountains to get snow and bring oh it back God. down before there's electricity. I can't even imagine being like, what the hell? It's melted. And like, I tried. Like, it was in my hot, sweaty hand. <laughs> it's God, insane. It sounds terrible. It does. But then here's where it comes to America. Thomas Jefferson had been in Europe for all of the revolution. And he brought over the idea of ice cream to the United States. And it was well-loved among high society. One summer, George Washington even spent $200 on ice cream. Oh like, that was his God. summer budget for ice cream. <laughs> But Sarah Estelle, being a free black woman in the South, working in the high society product is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So one of the first mentions we have of her is in 1833. Sarah Estelle sold ice cream in Nashville. But there's this book that came out called Old Days in Nashville, Tennessee that Jane Thomas wrote. And it happens at this big revival at McKindry Methodist Church. And it says... Between the song and the prayer, he would take the boys to Sarah Estelle's and treat them to ice cream and then take them back to church and go to singing and praying. The he they're talking about in the story is the minister's son, and he would be bribing his friends to come to church by saying he would buy them ice cream from (laughs) Miss Sarah Estelle. And she was in a log cabin-ish type building home right next to the church. Okay. So she lived right there and people would come over during church and get ice cream. That is so cool. It is. And then Sarah. Wait, can I ask a question? Was this like a, what kind of, was this a white church, a black church? A white church. church. Okay. White Methodist church. church. Okay. Gotcha. I just wasn't sure what, that's really interesting then like that she has probably predominantly white clientele. Yes. She does have mostly white clientele. Well, I guess they are also the people that can afford it. Yeah. It would be way too expensive for people who weren't white. So it's, it's funny too, because Sarah would have had to have been extremely well off to do this because ice cream in the 1930s, like we said, was fancy. It's a delicacy. It was reserved for statements and statement and like other blue bloods that could afford it. Mm -hmm. Leaving aside the startup costs, the equipment to make it the building that she needed to own and or rent. They were all hard to come by. And she had to be able to afford a steady supply of ice before electricity. Oh, my God. So, like we said, she served high society, which means she was probably well-respected in the community. And we know from the census census I mentioned in physical, she was marked with an M, meaning mulatto. So, I'm assuming here, but I think she was probably one of the children of the plantation, 
which is a euphemism used in that time in the U.S. to identify the offspring of an enslaved black woman raped by a white man. Typically, the owner of a plantation or one of his sons or the overseer. Mm -hmm. Toni Morrison wrote about this, saying this sexual usage of slaves was known as the right of the Lord. And I'm not saying that Sarah was definitely a direct descendant that was born into slavery and then freed by her father. She could have been like a generation down and was never a slave. But it's definitely possible that she was biracial because one of her recent ancestors had been raped by a white owner. So... These children, children of the plantation, were born into slavery through American legal doctrine. A minority of these fathers would treat their children well and provide education and career opportunities. Obviously, the most famous of these is Sally Hemings, who um, bore many children to Thomas Jefferson. And then some of these owners would participate in manumission, which would be freeing their children in their will. To know more about this, there's a couple books if you're interested. The Story of the American Family by Alex Healy that came out in 1993 that also became a movie that brought a lot of attention to this. And then Edward Ball's Slave in the Family, and he was a white descendant from a slave and a slave owner who wrote a book in 1998. But Sarah started by selling candy, then became known as the Ice Cream Queen of Nashville. At the start of her ice cream making career, she was most likely making a custard-based ice cream, dairy, eggs, and sugar slightly cooked before chilling because she was making ice cream before the invention of the hand crank. Mm. It would not have been airy, light ice cream. It would have been very thick like a custard. Her most famous flavors were chocolate, fruit, and Parmesan. Oop. (laughs) (laughs) So I had to add that Parmesan cheese. (laughs) (laughs) that is so interesting Mm -hmm. i can't even imagine a parmesan flavored ice cream well most ice cream back then was flavors of things you had around like there was a rye bread ice cream well that sounds delicious yeah (laughs) it wasn't like really sugary like we think of it today it's just like we're mixing ice with whatever we have here okay so it's more savory Mm -hmm. okay Uh, they could be savory yeah okay So she became really successful, so ends up turning her ice cream business into a catering business. She is just a serial entrepreneur. I know. Because I love that you can see the layers of it. Like, we don't know a lot about her, but, like, we know that she started with candy and was probably just so successful with that that she was able to move up. So I am so impressed by her. Selling candy next to church where people are trying to keep their kids quiet. What an idea. Genius. (laughs) Here's a lolly. (laughs) Shut your fucking mouth. So her catering firm, like the sign says on the wall in Tennessee, met the banquet needs of city firemen, church socials, and political parties. And she catered to the city's elite. The historian Bobby Lovett notes in his book, The African-American History of Nashville, Tennessee, from 1780 to 1930, said she, quote, served food for parties and balls of whites. <laughs> that was his quote about her. That's, his, that's okay. her thing, I guess. All right. We happen to know, obviously, a lot more about free black women in the North. The book I mentioned at the beginning, In Pursuit of Knowledge, said that we like to think African-American women were absent in our history, but they're not absent and they weren't passive. So here I'm going to tell you about one Susan and three Sarahs. Okay. So Susan Paul was a teacher 
who wrote the first biography of an African-American published in the United States in 1835. Wow. And she was from Boston, and she was a free black woman, and she wrote it about her six-year-old student to point out the differences between black and white children. Wow. Really cool. That's the Susan. Now let's get to the three other Sarahs, not Sarah's stuff. <laughs> Sarah Harris, with her white neighbor, um, Prudence Crandall, from Connecticut start a school for young black women because schools were segregated. The neighborhoods obviously enraged. So in 1834, a gang of white men surrounded the school, broke the windows, all this stuff. Um, Prudence, the white woman never fully recovered emotionally. And the 20 black girls that she was helping get an education lost their right to schooling. But Sarah Harris, who had helped open the school really thrived. She moved within that area. She got married to a blacksmith and her house is still there today. And it is a rare example of a middle-class black free family in the 1830s. That's so cool. Sarah Parker Raymond was born a free woman in Massachusetts. She was an international human rights and women's suffrage speaker. She gave her first speech on abolition at 16 years old. Then she went to London during the Civil War and appealed to the courts to help blockade the Confederacy. Then after the war, she came back and raised funds to help support the millions of newly emancipated slaves. And then she went to Italy to become a doctor and practiced medicine in Florence for 20 years. I'm sorry, what... what? What year is she? 1800s. This what is the hell? During the Civil War. All these women are during the Civil <laughs> That's War. That's so cool. Free black women. Yeah. And then Sarah Maps Douglas, the third Sarah, was an abolitionist and a painter. And we have the earliest surviving images of African-American art that are signed from her. She was from Philly and her art was found in a collection of letters between her and her friends from the 1800s. And she would like draw pictures on the letters and sign her name to them. That's so cool. The reason I bring this up is all these women have Wikipedia pages and they're from the North. Yeah. The South is still an understudied. There's not a lot of research and there's not a lot of stuff you can find because people didn't save their records. Yeah. Or didn't care. Or they could have also been like destroyed. Right. Like, I mean, I think about again, what like the daughters of American Confederacy did to black history in the South. Like they basically just erased so much of what actually happened. And like that probably happened to individuals as well. Just like, an erasure yeah and, and like not or just not record it yeah. right like nashville well, they, there's a couple things lines here and there that sarah estelle existed but that's it right because they were also not really allowed to learn how to read or write so like how how would they keep records yeah like exactly they were literally turned away from school you would get yeah. in trouble for teaching a black person how to read and write it was yeah. against like quote-unquote slave code so like white people wouldn't do it it was wild. But my point in saying all that is that black women were and are here. Yes, they absolutely had to work harder and struggle for every thread of respect and freedom that they got. But they were a thriving culture and they were incredibly important as a backbone to American culture. Just like just like they are now. Yeah. It's like we just totally blanket that part like, oh, they were they were enslaved. Right. Other than Philly, one of the most crucial areas for free black Americans was New Orleans, Louisiana. Three people of color. Katie did an episode on Marie Laveau, mm-hmm. who's from this time period, who was born a free person of color in New Orleans. Most times we think about free black Americans escaping and living in the north, but New Orleans, New Orleans and Antebellum South 
the free people of color enjoyed a relatively high level of freedom. And I attribute that to the legacy of Spanish and French descent in that area, as opposed to the British descent we have in other places. Most heavily, these people were in New Orleans, but some were also in Baton Rouge. One of my favorite antebellum paintings is of a free black woman in New Orleans. And she's in this lavish French dress with a parasol. And she's like holding her daughter's hand. Have you ever seen this no, painting? I haven't. It's so cute. And it just looks like the American daydream that we wish would have happened. Right. For people that it did just didn't. So free African-Americans in the South, like we said, is understudied. But by 1860, there were 250,000 free black Americans in the South, just in the South alone. Mm. And uh, free Southern blacks lived under a shadow of slavery, unable to travel or assemble freely as those could in the North. And it was a lot harder for them to maintain membership in churches and schools. Most were small farmers, but they were considered second class citizens, not allowed to vote or testify in court against white people because they were living under the risk of being kidnapped and being sold back into slavery Mm. because they had to carry papers that said they were free, but then sometimes they weren't free. So, um... Very few of these free blacks, if they were very wealthy, would own slaves themselves. But it was typically a family member that they purchased to free. Okay. Sarah Estelle was one of these such people. Really? Sarah Estelle owned a man. Most believe it to be her husband. She purchased him when she made enough money. And um, she was rich enough to own a person. That's how prosperous she was. And that was hard to do. It was expensive for a white family. Yeah let alone, you know, um, a woman of color that owned an ice cream shop. So we've got a couple signs, obviously, like I said, of Sarah Estelle. In history, we know that in 1859, Sarah Estelle was so highly respected that she turned her ice cream shop into a boarding house. Wow. The next step up. So she went from sweets to ice cream to catering and now to boarding. So here's all we have. And this is just what I gave you in the whole story. In 1833, we've got the quote about her next to the church. Mm -hmm. In 1840, the Tennessee State Library has records of her shop. In the 1850s, there's the book about the guy saying she caters to white balls. In 1853, we have the expense report of General Brigadier Alfred Eugene Jackson, who paid her $2 (laughs) for eatables. It's like his receipt. (laughs) We have his receipt, but it says her name on it. And in 1855, we have the Nashville Business Directory that mentioned her. And our very last evidence of her was the 1860 census that I mentioned at the top of the show. Her time frame is said to have been 1840 to 1860, and that predated most records or archives to help provide evidence of her suite's operation. We have her name listed in a couple books and on a few scraps of paper, and I'm so glad we do because that is all we know of the incredible entrepreneur Sarah Estelle. Wow. That's it. That's all we got. And then I found this newspaper clipping. (laughs) Sarah Estelle, comma, colored. (laughs) Fashionable boarding house. One door north of Theater, Cherry Street, keeps ice creams, refreshments, etc. Also furnishes and superintends suppers and fashionable parties. That's it. Wow. That's all I could find. <laughs> That's Sarah. But you know what that tells me? And I love, so <laughs> I'm going on so many I love things tangents. that don't make any sense. But um, I saw this thing the other day that was about like how Barnes & Nobles is like, you know, wants to start selling beer and wine. And people are like, oh, stick in your lane. And people are like, 
No, this is exactly what like Blockbuster didn't do. Blockbuster could have tried changing their business plan to adapt to the market, but they didn't. And that's what Barnes & Noble is trying to do. And that's what Sarah Estelle did. She was like, you know what? I'm not just going to be satisfied with my candy business or ice cream business or whatever. She was like, I'm going to I'm going to go as far as I possibly can. She was like and I I feel like she never asked permission she just started doing it right and it just was like I sell ice cream now and I throw parties and like you can like you know what I'm saying like I don't think that she ever asked permission to do these things I think she just did them and then she was so fucking good at it that people couldn't deny her yeah I'm and I'm so happy you used the word entrepreneur earlier in the show because I wrote it in my notes for the very end but I was like you, we just say, oh, she was a black woman that sold ice cream, but she wasn't. Yeah. She was a small business owner who was evolving business ideas in her brain on the fly. Yeah. We reserve the word entre- entrepreneur for usually men who are doing male jobs, yeah. like businessy type jobs, mm-hmm. like or jobs that, you know, seem like very in the market or economic. Yeah. And it's like, that's not what an entrepreneur is. Yeah. So. That's awesome. I was excited about her. And thank you, Olivia, Ah, for sending this to our attention because it was really hard to research, but really rewarding. Mm, That's awesome. Well, thanks, Olivia. (laughs) Are you ready for more drinks? I really am. All right. With less Parmesan. Yes. (laughs) This is not cheesy. Three men from history off the top of your head. Uh, Washington, Adams, Jefferson. Okay, now name three women. Uh, um, Tubman, Anthony, um, uh, Roosevelt. Eleanor. Okay, it took you longer to name the women. Okay, <laughs> harsh, but yes. <laughs> One of the biggest reasons that this happens is that there's consistency in the K-12 curriculum on which men need to be taught, and there is no consistency on women. Okay, I don't feel so bad. I'm Kelsey Eckert. I'm a high school history teacher. And I'm Brooke Sullivan, a girl who missed out on a lot of important ladies in school. And together we're creating tools to get women's history in the K-12 classroom. Our podcast, Remedial History, comes out every Monday. Kelsey teaches me a lesson that should be a staple in every curriculum. We're talking themes and important women, and Kelsey tells me the main reasons why these women are skipped over in school. Each week on our website, www.remedialhistory.com, I post an inquiry-based lesson plan for teachers based on our episode. And we found every other lesson plan of worth that's out there and linked them for you. Check it out. You can find Remedial History anywhere you get your podcasts. We are back. Okay, we're back, and we've gone from dessert to brunch. Oh, (laughs) wrong order. (laughs) Wrong order. What is it? It looks so cute. Okay, okay. So this is called Uzo Fertuzo, and (laughs) this is named after... Disco Stew's line from the Odyssey episode of The Simpsons. Of course it is. And he like literally like comes over to, you know, Penelope, who's Marge, and he goes, I'm Disco Stew and I got Uzo for Tuzo. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just imagining like a Valentine's Day brunch and, you know, having like making this for two. And yeah. But anyways, so this is an ounce and a half of Uzo, an ounce of orange liqueur, two ounces of pineapple juice, an ounce of orange juice. You shake it up with um, rosemary 
And then you top the whole thing off with champagne and you garnish with a sprig of rosemary. And some Parmesan. Cheers. Cheers. And Parmesan. <laughs> mm, it smells so good. Yeah. Uzo is one of those things. It like, tastes very rich, I think. Mm-hmm. Uzo. I... It's it's definitely like an acquired taste, like because it has that anise like licorice taste. Yeah. So like you really have to balance it out with like other things. Yeah. Um, but it's really nice when it's kind of paired with like a lot of other things that you enjoy. So um so yeah. Champagne so, and orange juice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Allie, what do you know about Circe? Okay, so I know she's in Homer's The Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the many places where what's his face gets stuck for 10 years. He like keeps, yeah, Odysseus Mm -hmm. keeps getting stuck all over the place on the way back to his wife or whatever. And this is the one where she turns his friends into pigs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's all I know. I, I haven't read the Odyssey since high school. So that's like my basic understanding (laughs) of the Odyssey. And then I always used to get pissed off that he was like bopping around all these islands with all these ladies. And she was at home, like remaining a steadfast virgin yeah. and like fighting off people. Yeah. That always super, really pissed me super off. Super irritating. Yeah. But yeah, she's one of, she's one of them ladies. Yeah, she is one of the ladies. Um, so I want to thank Avery Bray for requesting her. Great um, choice. Great choice. Um, I hope you meant the goddess and not Cersei Lannister. No, she did. Um, I think okay, she said good. that of Greek mythology. <laughs> her her request said of Greek mythology. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, so this is kind of a like a difficult one to research because there's not like a ton on her, kind of like your person actually. Um, so Cersei is one of the most powerful but forgotten characters from Greek mythology. She is most associated with Homer's Odyssey, where she plays an important character. But Homer doesn't really give her much dimension. You know what I'm saying? Um, and because of this, her story will not be linear because she kind of pops up all over the place. So we'll be covering her characteristics, the story she appears in, and of course, the cultural impact that she has had and what she means to us today. These could not be paired to better. I know. Better. I, how, does, how does this happen? I don't know. Um, so Cersei is an enchantress from ancient Greek mythology. According to legend, she is the daughter of Helios, the sun god. Um, and Percy, an ocean nymph. So it's also wanted, why I wanted like a bright, sunshiny cocktail. Very cute. Um, so some say that her mother is actually the Greek god um, Hecate or Hecate. Um, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, and But because Hecate is the goddess of witchcraft, like officially. Um, but I guess it depends on what stories you read. I feel like it kind of follows that like Greek versus Roman mythology because a lot of the characters kind of bop back and forth between both. Um, and again... Please, anyone who knows anything about Greek mythology, feel free to correct me because one of the problems I was having is that, like, there's so many different stories. (laughs) There are. And then you're right. Between the Greeks and the Romans, it's like the same story with different names. Yeah. But, like, different authors. And it's very confusing. Yeah, it's very confusing. Um, So I tried my best. (laughs) And there's... A lot of consonants and words where you don't feel like they belong. Yes, absolutely. Um, so her brothers were Aetes, the keeper of the Golden Fleece, um, and the father of Medea, um, and Perses. Um, her sister was Pasiphae, who was the wife of King Minos and the mother of the Minotaur. Isn't mm. that interesting? 
But she's related to Perseus or Perseus, not oh, Perseus. Perseus. Just okay. Perseus. I was like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> <The connection>. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, Perseus. Um, and uh, yeah, and so her, yeah, her sister is the mother of the Minotaur. That's very really cool. Some say she is the goddess of magic, like I said earlier. Some say she's a nymph, but most simply refer to her as an enchantress, a sorceress, or a witch. Um, her best witchy skills were transfiguration and herbal potions, but she also had some other really interesting powers. Um, she is said to have been able to turn trees white and make the earth rumble. She could turn the world dark by hiding the moon or the sun behind clouds. And she also had a really weird power where she could project her dreams in a weird way. So like, for example, like she could be sleeping and she would dream of like blood running down the walls of her palace or all of her vast collection of herbs like burning in a fire. And like if you were standing in the room, you would experience it, but it wouldn't be real. Hmm. So she's creating like a 4D experience for you. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. And like she's experiencing it in her, in her dream, but everyone else outside can do it too. And then she wakes up and like everything vanishes. Hmm. It's really, it also kind of reminds me of like the shining girl needs an alarm clock. Yeah. <laughs> um, her name originally pronounced Kirke means hoop around or to secure with rings um, to reflect the binding power of magic. Um, and according to legend, she found herself on the infamous Isle of Ayaya. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> That's what YouTube said. Um, when she was banished by her father for killing her husband, the Prince of Col- Colchis. So I guess she was married to the Prince of Colchis. She killed him. And then I think Zeus was really pissed. So he was like, Helos, Helos, get her out of here. So he takes her to this island, but she makes do. She makes a palace in the middle of the forest surrounded by nymphs and um, nyrads who kind of acted as like her ladies in waiting. Um, so they'd help her out. They um, would be like kind of like magical assistants. They'd gather her the herbs and the flowers from around the island that she would use in all of her potions. Um, but, and other than making potions, she you know spent a lot of time like singing and weaving delicate and you know quote dazzling fabrics mm-hmm. <laughs> um and the island of ayaya was also home to many beasts um and animals who would greet anyone who stepped upon the shores men usually took this as a sign of welcome and good hunting um but what they didn't realize was that they were really the victims of circe's powerful magic um And even though she is very powerful, one thing that she constantly falls victim to is falling in love. Her most famous lover, of course, is Odysseus. But before we get to him, we're going to talk about some other loves of Circe. The first guy we have is a fisherman named Glaucus. Um, His story also has to do with herbs, but not Circe's. (laughs) He was a mortal fisherman living in a small fishing village when he came across a magical herb that could bring the fish he caught back to life. I don't know why you would want that power because it kind of seems like the whole point of fishing is that like you kill them. I don't know why we want to bring them back to life. Yeah, just then just throw them back. Like right. why Why do you want to keep them alive? That's confusing. I, I, yeah, it's very confusing. Unless it was because back then there wasn't refrigeration. So you put them on your boat and you were out there for hours and they started to stink and then you got them back and you brought them back to life. So they were mm, fresh fish. Maybe. Oh. That would be the only reason I would want to bring a fish back to life so it didn't stink yeah. in the <laughs> rotting sun. Um, so he has this herb, and then he gets a little curious, and he is like, I wonder what happens if I eat it. So he eats the herb, which, of course, had disastrous consequences because this is Greek mythology. Um, it made him immortal, plus. 
but it also caused him to grow fins instead of arms and a fish's tail instead of legs. And of course, he was basically banished to the ocean. Um, did it have a little tag on it that said, eat me like an <laughs> Alice in Wonderland? I think it was just like understood because that you don't eat this. That could be really confusing. That poor girl. I also <laughs> imagine it looking like gillyweed. Like, uh, yes. <laughs> I killed Harry yeah. Potter. <laughs> so he basically gets turned into like a really bad vervent version of a merman because like he has fish arms. So he can't even like hold a trident. Like, <laughs> oh, poor guy. Um, so he was initially pretty upset, uh, but then he made friends with some ocean deity people and he learned the art of prophecy. So then he began kind of chill with it. And he's like, okay, I can be kind of a god, like a demigod. Um, he has a lot of tales and adventures over the years, but when he comes into Cersei's life, it is because he is in love with a nymph named Scylla. But Scylla was like, look, I don't fuck with fish dudes. And she refused his advances. So like every good fictional man who has access to magic, <laughs> he decides to go to Cersei for a love potion to make Scylla fall in love with him. But when they met, Cersei falls deeply in love with him. I don't know why she has this kind of taste in men. Um, <laughs> and she was like, Cersei, come she was on. Like, Absolutely not. I'm not giving you a love potion for another woman because I'm in love with you. Um, <laughs> come get in my prison. But I will give her some credit for this because instead of slipping him a love potion to fall in love with her, she really did try wooing him. Oh. She would sing him songs. She wrote him poems. She would like talk shit about Scylla behind her back. Be like, oh my gosh, you really don't want to be with her. <laughs> Trust me. What was her name again? Scylla. Sarah. S Sarah. S Scylla. <laughs> um, Isn't that syphilis? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the number one go-to on sitcoms when they're trying to insult a, like, a lover that someone doesn't know? They, like, call them the wrong name. Oh, yeah. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, but it's just, like, not working. He wasn't having it. He's like, I'm in love with Scylla. And he said, trees could grow on the ocean floor and seaweed could grow on the highest mountain before I would stop loving Scylla. This just did not please Cersei. But instead of taking it out on Glaucus, um, I guess she was like, well, you did get turned into like half fish man. So you're probably punished enough. Um, she decides to attack Scylla. Of course. One day while Scylla is bathing in this pool, Cersei decides to poison the, the water, which transforms Scylla into a terrible monster with 12 feet and six heads. She then plagues the ocean and tortures many sailors, including one named Odysseus. We're not quite there yet. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, her next great love is Picus, son of Kronos, or in Roman mythology, Saturn. She met him while he was hunting, and like she does, she immediately fell in love with him. He was very handsome, but like Glaucus, he was in love with another woman. It just keeps happening to her it's like girl just listen to carrie bradshaw's therapist i think you're picking the wrong men picking the wrong men. <laughs> you killed the first one just get away from bon jovi <laughs> um so he rejects her and she was not super stoked but she was persistent <laughs> this time she pulled out all the stops she is using magic herbs potions but nothing seems to be working on him he keeps rejecting her so finally she gets so distressed that she uses one final spell she turns twice to the east, twice to the west, while touching Picus thrice with her wand as she sang her charms. And poof, he's a woodpecker. Ooh, <laughs> a woodpecker. <laughs> I didn't expect that. And she's like, <laughs> I couldn't help it. She was like, if you won't get into my hole, get into some tree holes. Um, 
<laughs> Go catch me some ladybugs. Way dirtier than it should have been. Yeah. Um, and then the poor girl that he left behind searched and searched for him before dying from grief alone on a beach. And in some versions, she like melts into her own tears. It's so sad. That's terrible. I know. Stop it with this. And whenever Pikus's friends would come to the island to look for him, she would turn them into animals, just further populating her island. So she's like, she's like Snow White, but all the animals yeah, are like, like ex-boyfriends. <laughs> As Snow White's like sitting in the forest and birds are singing on her hand. And they're like, they're like, help me. <laughs> she's like, this bird was my first kiss. <laughs> and I just, I like, that's interesting too. Cause again, it's reminding me of like the trait of like witches having animal familiars yeah. and like animal, just having our special relationship with animals. And so this island, the island of Ayaya, is where our dear friend and infamous adulterer Odysseus eventually <laughs> finds himself when he gets, well, we'll just say a little bit lost trying to get home to his wife Penelope and his son Telemachus. So Telemachus <laughs> is his son with Penelope. Let's keep that in mind for later. The story goes that on the way back from the Trojan War, he gets derailed by storms, monsters, gods, and of course, many a magical vagina. Right? Because he got cursed for pissing somebody off, right? Something, Something like, like, that. like that. Yeah. Um, and he eventually finds himself on the shores of Ayaya. One of the soldiers climbs to the top of a mountain to get a lay of the land, and he sees smoke coming from a large palace in the middle of the forest. Another gum and wish tree. The men tell Odysseus, they're like, we'll be right back. And they travel to the house where they are welcomed by animals, beautiful nymphs, and of course, Cersei. The very first night, she throws a banquet in their honor. Their food is flowing. I mean, there's honey, wine, cocktails. They're having such a good time. So they eat and drink until they're absolutely full, unaware that they have all just consumed a magical potion. When the men are done, she waves her wand, recites an incantation, and the men are turned into swine. Well, you know, it's their fault because all the little chipmunks were under the table pulling on their pant cuffs uh -huh. and they were just nudging them away. No, they were like, I don't want to fucking listen to you. But they should have. They really should have. They're like, I want to get now. drunk and cheat on my wife. Don't fucking tell me what to do. So... The second in command, though, was the only one who was not turned because he was kind of suspicious and he decided not to consume anything. So he runs back to the ship. He tells Odysseus what happened. And they're like, OK, what the hell do we do now? So, I mean, <laughs> I don't even know why he's so pressed about this. He's been on so many adventures where, like, all the men get killed. <laughs> and it's like, just to cut your losses, man. Yeah. Obviously, you don't give a shit about your own soldiers. <laughs> uh, whatever. Get um, home. So... Odysseus goes to pick up his boys, um, on, but on his way to Circe's house, he gets stopped by Hermes, who has a message from Athena, who's always looking out for him. And he goes, okay, okay, okay. So she's going to give you a herb, but that's a bad herb. So now I'm going to give you a good herb that won't let the bad herb, like, fuck with you. So Odysseus is like, cool. Thanks for looking out for me, bro. He takes the herb and just storms into Circe's house and is like, what the fuck? Do you only see Hermes as the little blue guy from Hercules? Whenever. What's funny is now I think of him as Andre de Shields because of Hades Town. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I always picture him with the little shoes. With I the know. <laughs> I like it, it switches back in my head between both now and mm -hmm. I adore both figures. Yep. Perfect. Um, so she tries to like witch him up, um, but he's got the good herbs. So she's like, fuck, he's impervious. And she says, you know what? You got me. And the one thing that Cersei always appreciates is intelligence and is a good cunning. Get. <laughs> a good get. She loves being got. 
Um, so <laughs> she's like, you know what? I like you. So she seduces him. Um, but before they go to the bone zone, Odysseus is like, you need to swear that you are not going to fuck me up and like curse me. And she goes, okay, I promise I won't. Pinky promise? I pinky promise. So they start hooking up. Shit's good. And of course, it's because Cersei falls like madly in love with him. She does turn his men back into human beings, even making them like a little taller and a little cuter <laughs> than they were before. Um, Very they, Ursula of her. No. And they all remain as guests on her island for about a year. Some versions say longer because apparently like she had a few sons with Odysseus. Um, they were... Um, Adias, Latinus, and Telegonus. So Telegonus is the one we have to keep in mind because mm-hmm. he has Telegonus with her and then Telekinacus or something like that with the other one. Right. She also has a daughter named Cassephone, but I don't know who the father is. It might have been that first husband that she killed. Right. But we also don't know the gestation period of a sorceress. That's true. Um, that is a very good point, Allie. It could have been just a year. <laughs> um, so we're just going to triplets. I don't know. So she tells him, um, oh, so after a year, she lets Odysseus go. Maybe it's because like she really does love him. Um, or maybe she was sick of him. I don't know. But she helps him find a safe passage home. She's like, look, you're going to have to go to the underworld in order to get there. And here's what you got to do to survive. And he goes off leaving Cersei and the children in Aya. Um, but like many Greek stories, that doesn't quite end there. So we know that Odysseus does eventually make it home. He reunites with his wife, whom refused to be with any other man, even though Odysseus is cheating all over the Mediterranean Sea. It's how you know a man wrote this story. It's, I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> if my husband was gone for 10 the, years at war, I'd be like, assume dead. The double standards I are assume un- in- unbelievable. Well, it's because she couldn't get pregnant. Men can't get pregnant. That's the whole, it's the whole reason that women had to stay virgins. Yeah. No, it's so true. Not virgins, but um, what's it called? Celibate. Uh, celibate. Mm-hmm. When their men were gone. Because it could be proven that you were a whore. Yeah. And then you'd be stoned. Unless you're Mary. <laughs> yeah. Mary <laughs> was almost stoned. Almost. But Joseph almost. covered for her. He did. What a guy. What a real guy. What a guy. Because I'm willing to bet he didn't see a vision. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> he covered for his pregnant girlfriend. <laughs> who was probably raped. Everybody's gonna cancel this our Mary episode. <laughs> we cover her and Madonna. That's a real episode that exists. <laughs> Everybody's gonna cancel this podcast, yep. guys. I also love Jesus. P.S. I'm a real fan of Jesus, <laughs> just not Christianity as a whole. I'm gonna put that disclaimer out there. Jesus, cool dude. Cool. Very cool. 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 He's Gandhi esque. <laughs> or maybe Gandhi um, is Jesus esque. Ooh. Yeah. 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 I feel like yeah. that's right. So. Years later, when Cersei's children are grown, Telegonus decides to go find his papa. Cersei says, okay, fine, but, like, it's pretty dangerous out there. Take this giant spear with a poison tip, like, just for safety, okay? Um, So he goes off, but on the way, he kind of pulls a Christopher Columbus, and he lands his ship in this town that he had planned to pillage to get some money and supplies on his way to Ithaca. And he thinks it's India. He <laughs> he just starts being a dickhead and things are going fine. But then this man attacks him out of nowhere and Telegonus stabs him with a spear, not realizing that he was indeed in Ithaca and the man he stabbed was his father, Odysseus. So Telegonus is like, fuck my bad. I thought I was in Rome. <laughs> I Dad. am so sorry. Whoops. Um, and <laughs> whoops. <laughs> 
So now here's where the stories take different turns yet again. In one version, so we have Telegonus stabs him and then he takes Odysseus back to Circe, to his mom, to have him resurrected. Mm. She successfully does this. And then Odysseus is like so grateful that he gives his son Telemachus, his child with Penelope, to Circe's daughter, Cassephone. Which everyone seems to be pretty cool with at first. Okay. Everybody's like, hey, let's marry these two families. You know what? I'd like the mistress to be my mother-in-law. So um, everyone's fine at first, but eventually Telemachus gets into a really heated argument with Cersei. And he kills her. Just straight up kills his dad's former mistress, his current mother-in-law, who is a who is a sorcerer. Yes, I don't know how he did it, um, but <laughs> boy's got skills. But Cassephone is like, "What the hell?" She's like, "That's my mom. How dare you?" So then she kills Telemachus, <laughs> and when Odysseus hears the news, he dies of grief. And it's Aww. like, well, maybe that's why you don't cheat on your fucking wife. Yeah, that shit happens. Um, in the other version of this story, though. So we're back to the beginning. Odysseus um, is stabbed. Telegonus feels terrible about stabbing his father because he didn't know. So he takes his body back to Cersei like before. But this time he brings Telemachus and Penelope with him to Ayaya. But Cersei can't revive him. So he dies in this version immediately. And she feels kind of bad about this. So she makes Telemachus and Penelope immortal. And then... Yeah, that's what they that, want. That's exactly what they want. <laughs> Penelope is like, I, I've lived a nightmare life. I don't want this to keep going forever. <laughs> this sounds terrible. Yeah, she's like, I no, no thank you. Um, And then Telemachus is like, okay, uh, thanks for the immortality. And you know what? <coughs> I kind of see what my dad saw in you. You're kind of hot. <gasps> And he marries Cersei. <laughs> Little father-son, get around, huh? And then Penelope is like, well, I want to have a good time, too. So she marries Telegonus. Her, 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 her half-son? Her husband's <laughs> mistress. Her stepson. Her stepson. Wow. Her step-half-son. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So... <laughs> Hey, it's all in the family. It's all in the family, especially in Greek mythology. <laughs> Telegonus and Penelope even have a child together named Italus, who eventually the country of Italy is named for. Really? Apparently. That uh, sounds fine. Again, I was on so many like Greek mythology websites uh, that are all like from 1991. So yes. like, I don't, I don't know what was going on. I love a person who doesn't keep up their dot com. <sighs> It's so great. <laughs> the fonts um, are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is in Comic Sans. Um, I used to have a manager who wrote every memo in Comic Sans. And it was funny because she was like known as like a really like tough, badass like woman. Who was like <laughs> the head chef. And like everyone was so scared of her. And she'd be like, take this memo. And it was like a really serious message. <laughs> and it was just in Comic Sans. And I was like... <laughs> No, not no one is going to take you seriously. You know you what I bet? To get out of Comic Sans. I bet she read the. Um, there was like this thing on Facebook a while ago about how Comic Sans is destroying the environment because of the amount of ink it uses for the bubbles. <laughs> like it compared it to other fonts. I bet that was her dig. I bet it was. I bet it was. She's like, I'm a She's badass, like, and I'm going to kill the planet on the way down. <laughs> 
um so speaking of things that are named for cersei (laughs) cercaea uh plants belong to the enchanter's nightshade genus so like poisonous plants like the genus is named after her they're called um cersei plants oh very cool um there are a variety of chess variants named Cersei in which captured pieces are reborn on their starting positions. I don't know how that works. I don't know anything about chess. Um, her name has been given to 34 Cersei, a large dark main belt asteroid first sighted in 1855. And then there's the Cersei effect coined by enzymologist William Jenks. And this refers to a scenario when an enzyme lures its substrate toward it through electrostatic forces exhibited by the enzyme molecule before transforming it into a product. Words, 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 words. Um, Astro Mystery, if you have any idea what that means, uh, holla at us. Send us, um, send us information. <laughs> but it's not all science shit that she has influenced. Cersei has been rewritten and interpreted for better and worse for centuries. She's kind of gone through this really interesting renaissance through all the different time periods. Like, they really didn't like her in the Middle Ages. They're like, she's a prostitute and a homewrecker. Um, And then she was also seen as, like, a real symbol of, like, the devil for a long time. They're like, she's a demon. And then she kind of was just like, no, she's just a symbol of, like, the evils of female sexuality and, like, dark magic. Like, She's always been seen as like this very evil character. Right. Because she could rule over men. Yeah. She had power. And this is the whole thing. I think if we take her and her story like from the Odyssey, we see her simply exposing men for what they truly are. She is a mirror. She literally turns a bunch of drunk men who are cheating on their wives into a bunch of literal pigs. And I think we can read something into that. Do we think that was Homer's purpose? No. Um, I don't think so. Um, but I also, I, I don't know. Maybe it was, but like, I doubt it. I, I highly doubt, doubt it. it, but it would have been very interesting. Like maybe he really didn't like sailors. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Why would he write like one of the longest, po- not the longest poems. That's in it's the an epic. <laughs> uh, one, an epic. The longest poem is the Upanishads. Ooh. <laughs> That's in the last, I think, I think it's in the last chapter of the Hindu quote unquote Bible. I think. Okay. It's in the four Vedas. There we go. Get Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the longest poem in the world is the Upanishad. So you know what? I'll take your word for it. But this is a very long epic and uh, I guarantee he did not mean to criticize men in it. No, I don't think he wanted to criticize men at all. Maybe. Maybe. I would have given him the benefit of the doubt that okay. Penelope is the hero. Okay. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. No, I won't. Um... <laughs> um so she kind of, you know, goes through a lot of different renaissances, um, but she's really just kind of put in the background. People are like, yeah, she's a minor character. Like the most exciting thing she does is turn men into pigs, whatever. But then she has kind of a resurgence in our lifetime. Thanks to the <laughs> burgeoning witch community. So like witches have like really embraced her. It's like she's like, they're like That's not, she's the mother of witches. Like we need to fucking respect Cersei. We have them to thank and an eighth grade girl named Madeline Miller. So Madeline is in eighth grade and she is reading Homer's Odyssey for the first time and she is loving it. She's writing notes in the margin. She's going back over things and she's just obsessed with the text. But she knows that 
what's probably going to be her favorite characters coming up. She's like, somebody told me there's a witch who turns men into pigs and she's waiting the whole book to get to Ayaya and Cersei. She's like, I can't wait for that. So she gets to the part and she's so excited. She's like, oh my God, here's Cersei. She's going to like kick Odysseus' ass. and It's going to be amazing. Female power. And then it turns into like a love story. And Madeline is upset. She's like, no, that wasn't supposed to happen. Why is her story so short? Why did she just like give up to, to Odysseus? I don't understand. So she thinks about this her whole life. And when she grows up, she writes a book from Cersei's perspective. Because why should Homer get total control over this power, powerful witch's story? So she writes the book Cersei. Which I know we've all seen in Barnes and Noble. It is like always at the end of the aisle. It's they really there. want you to buy this book. Time um, and to, I probably will now. Time to buy it. Um, <laughs> so she writes it as a coming of age novel, putting her own spin on a classic story, which is really risky because people are not super stoked usually when you do that. Um, but the book is a total success. It was published in 2018. It was a New York Times bestseller, earning the Goodreads Book of the Year Award. So... I just want to say thank you to Madeline Miller for reclaiming the story of Cersei and turning her from a minor character and a minor goddess into a worthy protagonist. Uh, and again, the only other appearance I want to mention is the Simpsons episode because that's uh, what I named the cocktail after. <laughs> <laughs> but Cersei remains a symbol of power for women, a mirror of bad behavior for men, and an inspiration for witches then and now. And that's Cersei, the, the sorceress. <laughs> what? What a very cool story. I know. I just like, and there's just like a lot to it. Like, I, I wish there was more and I kind of wish I'd read the book, but like, I felt like it was good for you to get the base knowledge of what we know and then go read the book for like yourself if you want to. Because, and we can always do a round table on it. Yeah, we totally could. Um, But, but yeah, it was just like a really fun story. And I like her as a character because I just think she's really... She's more dynamic than we give her credit for. She was always my, what I thought was the most interesting character because I, mm -hmm. what I think, and again, I haven't read the Odyssey in a long time, but he stayed there the longest, like of all of his journeying, mm -hmm. right? Wasn't he, he was with her. I don't know. For a very long time. I never read the Odyssey. Um, oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's no Iliad. Yeah. Like <laughs> nobody likes the Iliad. They're like, Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. What's the Iliad about? the war blank 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 <laughs> okay um are you ready to compare these women i am wow so we're gonna get into a little segment we like to call just the two of us okay so i kind of feel like this whole the whole theme of this episode accidentally is like the underdevelopment of women's stories. Yeah, they're non-dimensional and forgotten, right? Like yeah. so even when Cersei is like this character in a very, very famous story, yeah. she's underdeveloped because she was underwritten because people didn't understand her as a woman. And the same right. is true of Sarah. It can't yeah. be summed up in one plaque on a wall. Well, because frankly, they are both too powerful for the time being. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. Sarah Estelle had too much social power for anybody to give her like any real noteworthiness. It's like we have a receipt. We got a plaque. And that's like all you're going to get because like we can't encourage the idea that like women of color can have any sort of social power in this world because the fact of the matter is 
she had something that other people wanted and nobody else could make at the time. She made ice cream, which was like a delicacy. And Cersei made potions, potions. which again are this thing of like, fuck, I don't want to give you power, but you got what I fucking need. Like <laughs> I'm coming for you, girl. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the reasons Homer underwrote her because like, I don't think he wanted to give her like a ton more power than like he, like than Odysseus, like, Odysseus, Odysseus is the hero of the story. Yeah. And that's why it's kind of like she's falling to him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think, too, like, so you know how Madeline Miller's the name of the new author, right? That you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny how, like, she was so excited about her story and then could just find nothing. Because when I was researching Sarah Estelle, the people that I found that did write about her, like, there are reasons now that there are pictures of the receipts and like the census because people searched for her name because they wanted. And I'm sure every time they saw her name in any sort of Nashville, Tennessee book from the 1800s, they're like, I found it. And it's like, (laughs) I feel like that's what Madeline Miller was going through. Like, where is her story? And she found it, but she found it within herself. No, absolutely. She was like, you know what, then this is a fictional character. It's not like Sarah Estelle who like, She's a real person who existed. See, like you could do like a biopic of her and like fill in the gaps or whatever and make it a really cool story. But like Madeline Miller was like, you know what? I'm going to take Cersei's story and I'm going to write the whole thing from beginning to end. Mm. And she like puts a lot of these like really interesting scenes. She's like, okay, are we all just going to like ignore the fact that her sister gave birth to a minotaur? (laughs) So like she includes like a really graphic scene of like Cersei helping her sister give birth to a minotaur with horns and hooves and like you know and she like just expanding on these stories that are again just underdeveloped and ignored and I just I love that there are people out there trying to fill in the gaps of this missing history I also loved when you said some people say she's a nymph some people Mm -hmm. say she's a sorceress because I feel like a sorceress is the most powerful type of witch it's like you've got your witch's grad degree when you're a sorceress and then like a nymph is like you're not even you're like a a witch's assistant almost you're like a woodland creature right and I I feel that way about the word entrepreneur that we used for Sarah is like an entrepreneur is like the most creative type of business person Mm -hmm. and we're looking at her as like a free black clerk at a store you're so right because I feel like when you say like oh like Cersei is like you know just a nymph for a witch then it's like not really getting the full picture and when you say sarah like she's a girl that sold ice cream you're like oh that's cute that's cute that cersei was a nymph and she was a girl who sold ice cream but it's really like no you're totally ignoring the fact that sarah still built her business from the ground up and you're totally ignoring that fact because you've been trained to ignore that fact because you know like you were saying like there is just such a small amount of information on free black women at that time. Right. And built it from the ground up as a woman of color in a slave state. Right. She's not in the North, which I think is one of the most important parts of your story. She's in a slave state. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Cersei. It's like she built her palace from the ground up after being exiled from like her home. She's sent to this small Island far, far away and is creating her own palace just based on what she has by herself. Yeah, no, absolutely. They're definitely both just like self-made women. And I think they're also expanding people's views on two 
groups of people that are often like ignored or generalized, which is witches and like free black women that that did exist. Because like you said earlier, it's like people want to be like women of color in the 1800s were only slaves. It's like, actually, that's not true. And actually, their stories are also very important because they had so much going against them because slavery did exist and was a real fucking problem. And like, I just think it's great that we have these both stories together that are trying to, again, like I said, like rewrite the history of like, and not even rewrite it, expand on it because it's not trying take to take it back. Yeah. And it's because it's not trying to say that enslaved women didn't exist. And like, actually it's like, it's not saying like black women are actually having, like, having a really fucking good time in the 1800s. Cause they weren't right. <laughs> but it's saying we need to expand the history to include other women because they did exist and their lives were valid things besides a male's perspective. Yes. Because Cersei is written from a man. And I know we joked about giving Homer credit earlier, but like, I honestly think he wrote the women in his story the best he could because that is how he understood women. He understood the wife at home pining Mm -hmm. and then he understood the sorceress who would fall head over heels in love for all of these sailors who came on the island and then Mm -hmm. get really mad at them when they didn't love her back. And like the same is true of the uh, antebellum South and North Mm -hmm. that it's like the stories were written to include what men thought were happening. And we forgot both the enslaved and free black people and what they were thinking. Right. Yeah. No, you're so right. Well, I'm just happy we have women out there who are currently looking for those women there. I mean, because they are trying really fucking They're hard. They're working so hard. That's why I tried to really name the professors who were doing it. You did such a good job of that because... I did not find... I did not do that research. Right, Other people yeah. did that research. I'm just saying their names. You can read their books. Yeah. Find their info. <laughs> because I, like... Well, I think that's so important because, like, it's kind of like how, like, if someone didn't want to give credit to, you know, Sarah Estelle for being an entrepreneur back then, it's like it would be on us to just be like, this is what I know, but I'm not going to tell you how we know it. Because there are people working so hard to do that and i think it's cool that you named all those writers and fucking professors and And they're just like it's just black american women trying to take their story back and it's like yes we want to hear what you have to say so reading their books and listening to their lectures in their words like women of color like it's so important no it definitely the buck does not stop here like go find those people yeah because they exist and they're important um Okay. That was great. That was ready to toast. That was really fun. Oh my gosh. I'm ready to toast, Allie. Okay. Who would you like to toast this week? On this wonderful Thanksgiving toast, (laughs) I would like to toast marginalized women. Your stories are footnotes instead of being front and center, the masterpieces that they should be. And I'm thrilled to know that Sarah Estelle's existed and that her story, no matter how small, pushes me to want to grow and learn more. Cheers. Cheers, Sarah. All right. What do you got? I am going to toast women who call men out on their shit. I think it's such an important part of her story because I feel like everyone paints her as a villain for turning men into pigs. Mm. But I think she was just like, you know what? You're acting like pigs. So this is what you're going to get. Like, did that one guy deserve being turned into a woodpecker? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) Did Scylla deserve being turned into a monster? No. But... I think it's really important for women to hold men accountable. 
And she is obviously in a very patriarchal society. And she's like, you know what? I have the power to be like, you all are cheating on your wives. You're getting super drunk with random nymphs. Like you're being dickheads. I am going to call you out and turn you into the pigs that you are. Um, so I'm going to toast her for that because <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> Do it. Okay. All right. And now for the very end of our show, the pop plugs. The wonderful things Just, that you should look up, listen to, watch, be a part of. Yeah. Because, if you have time. Oh, <laughs> there's so much fun stuff out there. And if, you know, I just, I don't know. Allie, <laughs> what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I am so happy with Vogue this week. Vogue? Okay. So Vogue put out what I think is their first cover ever with a man on the cover. Really? Is kind of what I read. It might not be their first ever. But the point is, they did a cover shot with Harry Styles. I love him. And he is in a ball gown. Oh, yeah. I know. (laughs) It is like the toast of the town this, you know, month-ish. Yeah. And it's month, two months, whatever. Vogue is like down and they're like, let's do Harry Styles, a man on the cover in a ball gown. And everybody's so pissed off. Oh, my gosh. The the conservative women on my Facebook feed are so fucking angry. They're mad about it. But it's like, what? Do you not want to wear pants anymore? Right. Like, well, let's just progress the idea of women wearing pants like a few hundred years. Yeah. And allow him to be in a ball gown. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, who? Hold on. I'm going to look him up. Because um, I also just saw a tagline that it was the first ever male on Vogue, but I never backed that up with facts. But I also <laughs> don't think it's true, but it could be. Um, right. But I just thought it was so really, really cool how how like progressively forward stepping that is. And I'm sure there are so many other magazines that have had men in dresses in them. Right. But Vogue did it. And we also have Billy Porter going out on the Oscars on the red carpet in yes. his kick ass. It was like half ball gown, half, half tuxedo. Suit, right? like they were also very mad about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how cool is that? That's how co- so, it's cool. so cool. And I love this direction that like fashion is going where it's like more things are being labeled like unisex and like, you know, not like men's clothing and women's clothing. And I, I love it because they're just people's clothing. Yeah. And I think it's a really great step. And I love Harry Styles and Billy Porter. And I'm so glad for just all of it. And I love that it makes Beth Mariella on my Facebook so fucking mad. Yeah. And I just, I wanted to bring it up because usually I bring up like a book or a show or a song. And it's like, yeah. you don't have to do anything but look up this yeah. one picture. Just Google it. It's one I picture. I know you couldn't Google either of these women. But no. <laughs> but you're done putting your bracelet you're on now. done. It's fine. <laughs> it's on. You look right. lovely. What are you into? I am going to recommend... The Etsy holiday commercials. Have you seen these? <laughs> no. Oh are they my great? God. Tell me. Okay. So there are a couple, but the two ones I want to highlight. One is like this girl and she, her name is Shiori and she keeps trying to tell people. She's like, my Shiori, it's Shiori. Like that's oh, my name. Oh, I did name. see that. And, she get, and like, she gets a necklace with her name spelled right. And she's so excited. I did see that. But the one that really fucking gets me is it's like, like a like a black gay couple and they get to thanksgiving i saw that too and the guy and he's like and they're like take your shoes off which is uncomfortable to start with oh my gosh they did such a good job of it being like no no one's being mean to him it's just he doesn't know what to fucking do because it's the first time he's at his boyfriend's house and he's there and then they're like we didn't want to forget you and they give him a present and it's like a 
ornament. ornament with him and his boyfriend and they hang on the Christmas tree and I cry every time. It is really good. I did see if that you commercial. you haven't seen them, I, they come before like every YouTube video right now, mm-hmm. which they should, but just like go look it up because it brings, and like it popped up like on like Facebook or something and I was like, oh, here come the haters and there were like no negative comments about this commercial, which made me so fucking happy and like I'm sure people are out there really mad about it, whatever, but like it just it warmed my heart so much because they got it so right of like how awkward you feel as a person who's going to your partner's family's house the first time for Christmas and how like you feel like super weird and like you don't know what to do and like it's just it's a perfect commercial it is wonderful (sighs) I love it so if you want something um just a little touch of holiday spirit this Thanksgiving (laughs) go watch that commercial and also I did look it up he is the first, made him the first man to appear solo on the magazine cover. Solo? Of the U.S. Okay. edition. Yeah. That's so, of the U.S. edition. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, so yeah. cool. Yeah. I love Harry Styles. I do too. His song, Watermelon Sugar, is so fucking good. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good. I also like it because there's a shop in Hamden that's called Watermelon Sugar. Uh, I almost promoted a Justin Bieber song this Ooh. evening, but maybe next week. <laughs> maybe next week. Stay we'll tuned. <laughs> um, well, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as Allie and I did. Um, it is such a gift to talk to you on this very different Thanksgiving <laughs> and if you can't be with your family this year we are here with you we're your family now we're your family now um so send us birthday money um <laughs> just kidding <laughs> Uh, just kidding. Uh, thank you for listening. You can find us everywhere. We're on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um Everyone, just yet, yeah, reach out. Spots. We're at all the spots. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We were so thrilled to get like three in one week. We're on a hot streak, so don't let it end here. We love you. We care for you. Happy Thanksgiving. And we want you to remember that well-behaved women have an actual ink stamp with their last <laughs> name on it. <laughs> and they rarely make history. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <laughs>